If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, and I am married to Leanne. Uh, Many of you in this room, you know my awesome wife. You know the incredible intelligence that she has, the the high capacity that she has. She's very organized, very task-driven. I mean, she accomplishes a lot. How in the world I got someone like that to say yes to marrying me? No one knows. This is a miracle of God. I am proof of God's grace right here. But when I married Leanne, I discovered a few pleasant surprises. For instance, most of our dating days were in college, so we would eat in the cafeteria. Or if we were at one another's family's homes, moms would make the meal. So when we got married, I discovered she's a very good cook. Now, she would probably not describe herself as a talented cook, but I have enjoyed thousands of meals that she has made. She's really, really good. Also, she's a very talented cake decorator. I, I have a music degree. I, uh, I want, I'm a wannabe graphic designer. I, most people would call me the artist of our marriage. But when it comes to icing, Leanne has me beat. I, mine would look pathetic. And like hers are worthy of photographs. We have many photographs of the cakes she has made for our kids' birthdays. But probably the pleasant surprise that I enjoy the most about my wife is that she loves spy movies and sci-fi movies. I mean, I scored so well on this. Like, when she comes back with a movie, I do not have to worry that it's some chick flick. Like, I know, guys, you're jealous right now, but it's wonderful. It's awesome. All right, for Christmas, we got uh, the Bourne series. It used to be the Bourne trilogy, and then they wanted to make more money, so they put out that really strange one called the Bourne Legacy, like number four, but Jason Bourne is not even in it. And, And then they finally had to correct their wrong, so they just made one more. And we got for Christmas all five of the Bourne movies. And so just a couple of weeks ago, we decided to restart watching the series. And so we sat down to watch the first one, The Bourne Identity. Anyone here familiar with the the Bourne movies? Okay, if you're not, if you haven't seen it, the first movie opens in the ocean. It's dark out, there's a storm, there's waves, you can hear the rain. And as the camera comes in, you see a body floating in the water. And then you see this boat bobbing along and inside are some fishermen and they're playing games, kind of waiting for the storm to, you know, wait out and maybe waiting for the morning to come. And all of a sudden, one of them's out on the deck and he notices the body. And so he calls for the guys and they fish it in and it's Jason Bourne. And much to their surprise, he's not dead. And they're a little freaked out. But when Jason comes to, he doesn't know his name He doesn't know why he was in the ocean. He doesn't know why there are two bullets in his back. You don't know much of anything about this guy. And so you're immediately hooked because they start the story in the middle. And you go along with the adventure through flashbacks and and dialogue, figuring out the whole story. It's a technique called in medias res. It's where you start in the middle of the story. And, and I kind of was researching it this week, and I discovered a lot of stories do this. I, I discovered Hamlet does it. Like, it's been a long time since I've read and, and seen Hamlet, but it turns out they start in the middle. Homer's Odyssey also starts in the middle. Even our modern soap opera, Star Wars, starts in the middle. I mean, it starts in the middle of the six episodes with episode four, but then even that movie itself. I mean, when it begins, could you imagine back in 1977, sitting down for the first time, all you know is that you're going to get to watch some space drama, and all of a sudden, two ships fly in. Why is this big ship attacking this little ship? Who's this Darth Vader guy? What plans does he want from this Princess Leia? You don't know, and you're trying to figure it all out as you go. So if you're trying to write a best-selling novel, if you're trying to write a box office hit, use in medias res. 
start in the middle. It's a very effective technique. However, if you follow Jesus and take the Bible seriously, I want to encourage you not to apply in medias rest to the Bible because it can have some very dangerous effects upon your theology. L- let me explain. If I asked just most Christians, what is the gospel? Many of them would say, well, the gospel is that mankind is sinful, but that Jesus came to die on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. And all of that is true. But did you notice where they started? Do you know the Romans road, the plan of salvation? Some of you might. If you don't know, the Romans road is this idea that uh, uh, you start in the book of Romans and you pick all of these verses out of the book of Romans and use them to explain the gospel, to help, understand, help someone understand why Jesus came and died on a cross. Right? So you use the road through Romans to explain it. Well, when I was in middle school, high school, I was taught the Romans road. And we were taught Romans 3.23. I I learned this week that some plans, they start with Romans 3.10. Well, it doesn't matter which one you pick. Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But do you notice where they start? They start with sin. The problem is, though, that sin does not enter the story of the Bible until Genesis 3. Meaning, you just skipped over Genesis 1 and 2. And if you do, in Medias Res, to the Bible, you end up having bad theology. And it can then affect the way you view humanity. If you live with this mindset that man is sinful, and that's the first thing in your systematic theology, it could cause you to be very cynical. Because, I mean, they're just a bunch of godless people. You, you could end up being very judgmental because they're just, you know, people are, they're just grave sinners. It, it, it could cause you to not trust people because, I mean, they're evil. You, you might even view yourself really poorly because, hey, I'm just a big sinner. I mean, how in the world could God love me? I'm just one big royal screw up. Today, we're going to go to the prequel. We're going to go to the start. And we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2. And I think what's going to happen for some of you is you're going to have a very pleasant surprise. And you're going to discover the immense value that you have, but also the immense value that all people have. And it will affect the way you relate to the world and help you to be more Jesus-centered. So Father, I just pray right now for our time together in the scriptures that you would be our teacher, you would be our guide. Open our eyes to what has been here far before we were ever on this earth and what will continue to be here even after we are gone. Help us to live our lives in accordance with the scriptures. So I pray for the Jesus followers in this room that today would be encouraging to them. And, and, and even if there's a bit of corrective uh, theology that's going on, that they would be open to that and that you would help them to see just how much you love them and love the world. And I pray for anyone here today that does not know you, that maybe their eyes would be opened through the power of your gospel, through your Holy Spirit, and you would help them to see that you love them. You're crazy about them. And today could be the beginning of a wonderful spiritual journey with Jesus. So Father, do with us right now what you want. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in the book of Genesis. So if you brought a Bible with you, whether it's a paper version or a digital one, go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, I encourage you, if you've got a smartphone, download a Bible to your smartphone. That way you've always got one with you. We recommend the U version. It's also known as the Bible.com uh, app. 
they have multiple translations, so I encourage you, download that. That way you always have a Bible with you. If you're like me and you prefer to read the Bible on a paper copy, we've got two different translations back on the table. We would love for you to stop and pick one up. Uh, One's a little easier to read. One's the one that I tend to teach from. So we'd find the one that will fit you best. We want to help you follow Jesus. And so if you need a Bible to do that, we would love to give you one. All right, but you don't have to get up and get it. You can also read up on the screen right now. So Genesis chapter 1. We're going to do all of Genesis 1 and 2, but don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let's just read the first five verses of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So what we see here is this creation account. God comes up with an idea. He merely speaks the word, and then it is. And reading one through five kind of gives us the poetical rhythm of this whole chapter. Because if you were to continue on, You see in verse uh, 6 that he creates the sky. And and then down in verse 9, you see that he uh, creates land. He has his land appear. And as the land appears in verse 11, he has plants uh, come about. And and then down in verse 14, you see that he puts the sun and the moon up in the sky uh, for the light. And then uh, verse 20, he puts uh, the birds in the air and fish in the sea. And down in 24, he creates animals to be on the earth. And then in verse 26, which we're going to look at a lot more here in just a little bit, he creates man, kind of like the pinnacle of his creation. And then as chapter 1 ends, you start coming to chapter 2, and you see that he's done. And it comes to the seventh day. And it's like God just kind of steps back, looks at all that he's created, and goes, man, that's good. I like that. And he just steps back and takes a day just to watch, just to rest, just to enjoy. But then something interesting happens in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heaven. As you read that, it's almost like Moses is starting again. Like, he he got done with chapter 1, and then it's like, Oh, hey, I got more to tell you about this. And so he starts all over again. Chapter 1 seems to be this poetical interpretation of the creation account. And now chapter 2 is this more narrative account. And chapter 2 gives you a little more detail, especially about the creation of man. It's almost like Moses gets done with chapter 1 and goes, Oh, that's really good, but wait, 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 there's a lot more. And so the Holy Spirit starts speaking to him more, and he keeps writing, and he starts giving more details about how humans were created. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, But there's a little bit of controversy surrounding Genesis 1 and 2. It's called evolution versus creationism, or some people like the term intelligent design. In case you didn't know, this is quite a hot topic. Uh, My father-in-law is very passionate about this topic. I I know others as well, and maybe some of you are. And so if right now you would consider yourself a creationist, you might fall into one of two camps. You might consider yourself a young earth creationist. And so what you're hoping right now is that I will start pointing out in chapter 1 that every time it says day, the Hebrew word there means a period of time, which can mean a 24-hour period. And so for you, it's very important that this is six literal days, and that on the seventh literal day, God rested. 
But those of you who are old earth creationists, you would say, well, well, I hope, Aaron, that you'll point out that, yes, the word that means day can mean a 24-hour period, but it also can mean just an extended period of time. And so it could have been thousands of years. That would allow us to understand why science dates the earth at four point whatever billion years old. It gives some space in there for the creation of dinosaurs and how they would die. Like you need that space in there so you would be an old earth creationist. Some of you, you might consider yourself an avowed evolutionist. Like you would say, Aaron, please just tell people that this is beautiful literature. This is art. We can read it to appreciate it. But come on, we've got to go and rely on science. Science shows us that this is, you know, how it all happened. We, we know it. it. Evolution is the truth. You've got to tell people the truth. Well, I'm about to disappoint all of you. Not because I am afraid of the subject. I actually think this is worth study and looking into. But if we get bogged down into the minutia of the creation story and debating whether it was evolution or creation or however it was done, we will miss the story that's here. Because the purpose of this His Story series that we kicked off last week is to see that Jesus is in every story of the Bible, including creation. And I see Jesus in here at least two times. I think we could actually argue for more. But today, we're going to point out two places where Jesus appears in this account. And the first place is in chapter 26. So look at Genesis 1, not chapter 26, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I think Jesus is right there in the first five words. Then God said, let us. The, the ancient Jews, they had many names for God. One of the most common names was Yahweh. The reason they had multiple names was they just felt that God was too majestic to be held in one name. And so they had these multiple names, and Yahweh was the most common. Yahweh just simply means to exist, to be. It helps explain why when Moses is having a conversation with God through the burning bush, and God is saying, Moses, I'm going to send you to go free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, well, who do I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them, I am sent you. That's God's name. I am. Because he just is. He just exists. He was here before all of this was created. He just is. He's Yahweh. But to the Jews, the word Yahweh was so holy, they did not even feel comfortable pronouncing it. Now, in Hebrew, they never wrote in the vowels. It was, it's pure consonants. And so what they did was they inserted different vowels into that word for Yahweh, and they pronounced it Yehovah, Jehovah. And they just kind of took that on to mean Lord. But the word Jehovah wasn't enough. They began to tack other names to it as well, other words. So for instance, they would have Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord provides. Or Jehovah Nisi means the Lord is my banner, this idea that he's over me. They would attach all these names to it because God was just too glorious to have one name. But the interesting thing is that when Moses wrote this, he did not use Yahweh or Jehovah. He wrote the word Elohim. 
Elohim is the plural for El. El is just the Hebrew word for God. All right? it, it could refer to the God of heaven. It could refer to one of the other false gods that maybe one of the other people had. It was just a general word for God. But the plural of it was Elohim. Because to the Jews, their one God, they were a very monotheistic faith. I mean, God would repeatedly tell the people, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord, and one. So they believed in only one God. But this God was so majestic. He was so different than any of the other gods. It was almost like he was plural. He was Elohim. And he was plural. Because if you continue on studying the scriptures, you begin to see that God reveals himself as one God in three persons. You see very clearly God the Father. And then you see his son, Jesus. And yet there's this Holy Spirit. And these three personalities comprise this one God. It's a mystery. I can't give you a great explanation. I can try. I can talk about how Leanne and I, we're, we're one. And yet, if you wanted to, you could walk next door and go see my wife. And she's there, very distinct. And yet, we're tied together. We are married. We share one name, Bird. We're one. That's how it is. There's this one God. He's revealed in three persons. And we see that when it says that, then God said, let us. He's talking to himself. It's the Father talking to the Son, the Holy Spirit saying, let us. And what is it that Elohim wants to do? He wants to create one more thing. He says, let us make man in our image. If you look at mankind compared to the rest of creation, you just notice a difference, don't you? I mean, I've, I've seen some really, really smart dogs, but their intellect just isn't quite at the same level as even some of our most ignorant of humans. I mean, I've seen some animals with strong will, and yet there's just something about the will of a human. I mean, if you have children, you understand that. You know, you, there's the personality of humans, the, the emotional level. I mean, you can see some of the stuff in animals, but it's just different with mankind. That is the image of God. But the Bible goes on to explain even more about this image. And so if you know where the book of Colossians is, go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background. The Apostle Paul would travel around to different cities. And as he would come into a new city, he would begin to just tell them the Jesus story. He'd tell them about Jesus, how he was the Son of God, came to earth, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, but died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, but rose again from the dead. Some people would believe this crazy story, and they would choose to follow Jesus. As they began to follow Jesus, next thing you know, you've got a whole group of disciples. So you start a church. And this church, they start growing and, and learning. Well, Paul, he would stay for a while to pastor them, but eventually he would just kind of get the itch. He knew he had to go to another city. So he would be raising up leaders, other people to pastor the church, hand it off to them, and he would take off. One prominent city was the city of Ephesus. Paul spent probably the most time of any city in Ephesus. We believe that he was there for three years. But finally, the time came where he knew he's got to take off again. And so he left Ephesus in the hands of his, kind of his protege, Timothy. Well, we believe that there were guys from the church in Ephesus who did what Paul did. They went out into the countryside and they began to go to the other cities and villages telling people the story of Jesus. One such small city was the city of Colossae. Paul had never been to Colossae that we know of. He did not plant the church there. And yet word somehow travels to Paul 
and he hears that this gospel message has gone beyond him. That there is now a church that exists that he did not start. Other people did it. They're pastoring it. They're leading it. Paul is elated. But yet there's like this pastoral side to him where he's like, okay, I got to at least write him a letter just to say, yay, I'm so happy for you guys. Oh, and while I'm writing you a letter, let me just confirm what you believe. So he starts telling them about Jesus. But what's interesting is he does not start telling the Jesus story like many of us might, of starting with, well, he was born in Bethlehem to to the Virgin Mary, and some people thought Joseph the carpenter was his dad, but he really wasn't. And, And then he grew up in Nazareth, and no, he didn't do any of that. He starts talking about the attributes, the godly attributes, the characteristic of Jesus. And here's how he puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Do you hear it? Who is Jesus? He's the image of God. When God creates man, when Elohim says, let us make mankind in our image, he's saying, let's take the image of Jesus and put it into man so that he may lovingly care and lead for all of these things that we just created. The image of God isn't just will and personality and emotions and intellect. It is Jesus. And don't get confused there, but that, that second phrase, the firstborn of all creation. In, in America, in Western civilization, we tend to li- live with a very linear type of thinking, a very chronological. But to the Jewish mindset, firstborn didn't necessarily mean the first one born. Often it did, but it could, it could change. If you're familiar with the story of Esau and Jacob, they, they were two twins. Esau came out first, just a few minutes before Jacob. So he would have been the firstborn. In Jewish society, there was a lot of responsibility put upon the firstborn son. He was expected to take over for his dad once his dad passed away. So all of the riches, the wealth would come to him. Some of you would get divvied up to the other sons. But the the oldest son, the firstborn, would get the double portion. He would get the most. And he would have the rights. He would basically be the authority. He would have been preeminent. But in the story of Esau and Jacob... Esau, through his own foolishness, sells it off to Jacob. And Jacob, through deception, steals it and gets it. And then Jacob becomes known as the firstborn. And some of the way we know this is we do not call God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob became the firstborn, even though he wasn't born first. It merely means preeminence. And that's Jesus To call Jesus the firstborn of creation does not mean he was the first thing or the first person made. It means he was preeminent over all of it. Why? Because it was his image that got input into man. So the first place that we see Jesus is at the very creation of mankind. Because it's his image that gets put into humans. But I see him in another place. I see him throughout the entire creation story. And part of what reveals that to us is the very next verse there in Colossians. So Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This means... 
that from Genesis 1-1 to the end of chapter 2, the whole entire account is happening by Jesus and through Jesus. He did it all. The Apostle John, when he starts writing his gospel, he starts it off much like Genesis, in the beginning. But then he starts to change it. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You start later realizing that he says this word took on flesh. It's Jesus. And so when you go into Genesis 1 and you start seeing that God just says a word, let there be light, and there's light. That word is Jesus. It is all created by him, but it's also created for him. In the opening, I admitted that I was a music major. I am not nearly as talented as Jeff. That's why we let him do that. Uh, I will attempt the bazooki, but I will fail horribly at it. But some musicians, they're really, really talented that they can just go in and crank out a song. And they could crank out that song, and it can wow the masses. Maybe it's to wow, like, one specific girl. Maybe it's just to make everyone think, wow, they're really, really talented. Maybe they're putting together a record and they just feel like, ah, oh, I need one more song. And so they just go and crank out a song just to add it to the record, just to kind of fill it out. Or maybe they start thinking, hey, I'm going to write a song to make me millions of dollars. I need a little bit of money. And so they crank something out and it's really good. But sometimes a musician will just go into his or her room and sit with their instrument and just begin to play. And they just start to create this music. This music's by them. But it's for them. It's not going on a record. It's not there to impress anyone else. It is just simply there for their enjoyment. When Jesus created everything, it was for his enjoyment. God was not lonely. He had the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was in perfect unity. He had perfect relationship. It was merely out of his enjoyment that he creates all of this. What it also means that when he created you, it was for his enjoyment. If you walked in here today feeling low, maybe you've been beating yourself up, telling yourself all sorts of negative thoughts, thinking you're just not worth as much. No one seems to really love you. You just feel distanced and disconnected from God. Maybe God brought you here today so that you could hear, you are loved. You are loved far more than you could ever realize because you were made by Jesus and for Jesus. Zephaniah 3.17 says that God exults over us with singing. He finds so much joy in his people. Why? Because his image is put upon us. And yes, that image, it has been affected by sin. It's been marred, it's been blurred, it's been distorted, but it's there. I have no idea what your past holds. I don't know what you've done. You do. And maybe that's why you're sitting there thinking, yeah, the image of God in me is too broken. And Jesus says, no, it's not. That's why he came to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, so that he could unearth that image of God and breathe his life back into you. And you could have that image restored. Because what God wants to take you and help you to love like Jesus loved and to live like Jesus lived. That's what our world needs. And so if you're sitting there thinking, I'm not worth much of anything at all, I want you to hear today, you are worth everything. 
you were even worth the life of Jesus. The second thing I want you to walk away with today is not only that you have immense value, I want you to realize that all humans have immense value. They too were created by Jesus and for Jesus. What that means is that we can't begin thinking that humans are just these sinful creatures that we can't trust, we get cynical about, we live in judgment over. Instead, we start viewing them as these images of God. Yes, the image has been distorted by sin, but it's there and they matter. And so that means that the color of their skin does not matter. There's only one race, the human race, because the image of God is upon all of humanity. It also means it doesn't matter their age. It doesn't matter if they're 98 and on their deathbed, if they're 44, if if they're 16. And I'll even say, it doesn't matter if they're even just in the womb. If they have human DNA, they matter to God. They bear his image. They're made by him and for him. It doesn't matter their religion. It doesn't matter if they grew up Christian. It doesn't matter if they grew up Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist. They're human, so they matter. We should let this affect how we view refugee situations because they're people who need Jesus. The image in them, it's been affected. And yet God loves them. It doesn't matter if they're male or female. It even doesn't matter if they voted for Trump or they voted for Clinton. They're human. They matter. This is what it means to live with a truly pro-life ethic. It isn't just to be anti-abortion. It means to be for all of life. And if you claim to follow Jesus, I want to encourage you to take on a true pro-life ethic as well. That you would care for people from womb to tomb. And that they all deserve the love of God because his image is in them. They were created by him and for him. So they have immense value. And so what are you and I going to do? How do we go about loving them? To love them the way Jesus would love them. To live among them the way Jesus would live among them. Before you can go and love them though, you got to love yourself. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here today, the first thing I want you to do is to merely receive God's love. I want you to realize how much he loves you. He's crazy about you. Because I believe that when you realize just how much God loves you, it actually compels you to go and do an Apostle Paul type thing. And you want to go and be a blessing. You want to share this because everyone matters to God. So today, as we partake of communion, I want you to realize that that is evidence of the love of God. Jesus went to the cross to allow his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, so that the image of God could be restored within you, so that that image could shine forth, and you would go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. But as you take that communion, I want to challenge you. How can you go and be like Christ? Are there people you need to go and give your life for? You don't need to die for them, but you might need to die to self. It might mean giving them some time. It might mean giving up some of your energy. It might mean doing something uncomfortable. But they're worth it because they matter deeply to your heavenly Father. And so, Father, I just pray right now 
for anyone in this room that, that knows you, that if there's some guilty feelings going on, that they would not feel condemned in any way, but instead they would feel inspired and encouraged because you love us. You placed your image in us. We were created by you and for you. You take such joy in the creation of us. You know our names. You know our stories. You even know our sin. And yet, Jesus, you still went to a cross for us. Thank you, Jesus, so much for loving us. And I pray for the Jesus followers in this room that they would then feel compelled to go, to value others the same way, that we wouldn't begin our theology in just Genesis 3, but we would allow Genesis 1 and 2 to inform us and inspire us to see just how much you love humanity. And Lord, I also pray for anyone in this room that does not know you. That as, as I've been talking, maybe you've been speaking to them and they're sensing that they need to give their life to you. You're calling them to be your child. You want to take that broken image that's in them and restore it, to polish it up, to mend it, so that they would go and be like Christ themselves. Because there's a hurting world out there, Lord, and they need some people who will love them the way Jesus would love them. And there's some of us in this room who are saying, here am I, send me. And I pray for the person today that they're going to take that next step of faith. And they're just going to pray a simple prayer, admitting that they are a sinner, but that you, Jesus, loved them so much because they were created in your image. And they say thank you, and they want to follow you. So Father, do with us what you want, not just in these next moments as we continue to worship, but throughout the rest of this day, the rest of this week, and the rest of our life, that we would go and be the blessing you call us to be. So help us, Father, to just receive your love so that we can then become a conduit of your love. And it's in Jesus' name, the image of God that we pray. Amen.